Last week was quite a week. The enthralling, exhilarating Chag HaPesach. And as we take leave of Pesach and get on with the routine in our lives, it was a real transition this week. Beyond putting away dishes and catching up on work law, there was a spiritual transition. How are we going to take the inspiration of Chag HaPesach, the inspiration of Cheres, what it means to be free, what it means to aspire for Geula in our personal lives? I have not yet completed my departure from Chag HaPesach. I am still thinking about these things, and therefore I want to take this week to develop a final dimension of Cheres, freedom, aspiration for personal redemption, to take with us from Chag HaPesach. I would like to be focus on, believe it or not, the dog. The canine creature. Pesach night. We all know the night of that first Seder in Mitzrayim. The Torah reports, V'yechratz kelav l'shono, even the dogs didn't bark. And while on a pshat level, the Torah is saying, unlike the Mitzram who were engulfed with death, who were experiencing the mayhem and the chaos of Makas Bechorus, the Jews were safe and there was nothing to wail about. So hence there was not even a whimper. One senses there must be more to this canine imagery. There's more to it than all of that. Certainly, we can tease out further symbolisms in the dog not barking, such as the importance of silence, calm, quiet, science is go- silence is golden, particularly when we deal with spiritual inspiration. As the Pasuk says in Malachim, as Eliyohanavi beholds the divine, first he experiences images, he beholds images such as Ruach, the wind, and the Eish, and the fire, and Rash, the loud commotion. And it says, Lo be'eish Hashem, lo be'ruach Hashem, lo be'rash Hashem, kiim be'kold g'mamadaka, the divine is not in the commotion, the divine is in silence. All of us lose touch with our personal divinity, our personal spark of the divine, when we have noise, when we have stress, when we are overtaken by chaos and by mayhem. We all make the stupidest decisions when we feel possessed to do things, as in there is noise, there is commotion, there is int- more so than even external noise, there is internal noise, internal stuff going on, which impede mindfulness and one being in touch with themselves. So the state of Cheres in Mitzrayim is predicated on quiet, unlike the chaos and the mayhem of the Egyptians. The Jewish people at the time of Geul are distinguished by cool, calm, collect, poise. We need to make mindful decisions. That's yet another symbolism, significance to the dogs not barking. But we want more than that. I want to understand the meaning of the dog. The 
Pasuk could have expressed the silence for the Jewish people, experienced by the Jewish people, with other imageries. It could have said, even the hater boys were not jumping up and down. Even the kids with, with ADHD were behaving themselves. The Torah fixates on the dogs. There's something about the dogs here. And there are, again, superficial thoughts which cross our stream of consciousness in terms of the symbolism of the dog. For example, isn't it neat to realize and to connect the dots that Pyro is described as a dog? The Medrash compares Pyro to a dog and thereby explains the significance of Moshe's mata, Moshe's staff, that this was supposed to represent, says the Medrash, the dog, that you the, 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 the stick that you hit the doggy with. Sit, doggy, sit. And sometimes the doggy just needs to be whacked a little bit. That was the way they took care of dogs in ancient times, long, long before the modern-day canine clinics and their approaches. So there was a symbolism at the time of Yetzirah Mitzrayim. Pyro is a dog. He's dog-esque. Whack him a little bit with the mat of the makos. Don't be deterred by Pyro. So from this perspective, when it's just even the dogs are not barking, it means your aggressor, Pyro, the dog, is not barking. That all of the fright, all of the fear which the victim experiences from their aggressor, including the barking of orders, the abusive, aggressive voice of the superior. And mind you, the victim continues to suffer, to suffer post-traumatic stress and other associate, negative associations from the bark of the aggressor. Well, if Pyro is that dog, even the dog not barking symbolizes the Jewish people are finding a way to lay to rest the abusiveness of their dog, of their abuser, Pyro. That's another dimension of symbolism, but I want more than that. There's something else about the dog here. Something which, when we tease it out, will give us exactly the steeper dimension of Cheiris which we're seeking to take away with us from Pesach. And my friends... I will kind of, at the onset of this journey, let you in on a personal secret. This shear has its origins in a childhood memory. My mother, may she be well, has a way with people, has a way to charm people, a way to relate to people, including people from other walks of life, Jewish, non-Jewish. And I remember the way she charmed and conversed with the owner of a frame store shop, a fellow who would frame posters and the like, we used to patronize that store not infrequently because my parents would always generously frame our diplomas and our awards. And the fellow who owned that store was a well-meaning Jew who didn't know from much, a real hippie type. I remember his long gray hair, and his dog, the, he had a dog named Elijah, which he was proud of. He knew that Elijah has a Passover connection. There's something about Elijah visiting the Seder table. And I remember my mother told him, it's not just the name of your dog, Elijah, but dogs have a Seder connection. Because at the Seder, we celebrate that the dogs didn't bark. In fact, we are taught midrashically that the dog was rewarded for not barking. 
Because later when the Torah says, you have treif and a meat, which Jews cannot eat, lot may not eat, lakel of tashlich so, throw the treif meat to the dog. Says Rashi, this is rewarding the dog because he didn't bark. You see, we have this debt of appreciation to the dog from the Pesach story. So my mother told me, you see, dogs are revered or venerated in Jewish tradition at the Seder. And oh, the guy, he felt great. He felt, he felt, you know, this is my people, my people, my dog. It all comes together, my tradition. And as a little kid, I thought, okay, you know, mommy is finding a way to charm an unaffiliated Jew. But with, adult, with maturity and adulthood, I really wanted to tease out the deeper meaning. What special qualities there to a dog? So celebrated about the dog. We feel the stead of appreciation, throwing him the tray from the meat because he didn't bark. Well, how does the dog not barking bring out a true virtue and meat? So, this journey requires some patience. I want to distill, identify the persona of a dog in Torah, what a dog represents throughout Torah, and we will slowly but surely make our way back to Pesach. We will perhaps begin with some traits of the dog which seem less than savory and then find redemptive quality to the dog. So, I begin with a Gemara in the beginning of Brachos, which speaks about many creatures, including the dog. The Gemara says like this. There is a concept called Mishmaros, guards of Malachim, that just like a palace here on earth has guards who guard the palace, not so much for security, but because for Kavad HaMalchus, the pomp and the dignity of royalty makes an entourage of guards appropriate. Likewise, in heaven, the heavenly Malchus palace has guards, particularly at night. And we are taught there's a concept of mishmaros, guards which change, just as there is the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace. Everyone likes to see not only the guards at Buckingham Palace, but the tourists are enthralled by the change of the guard and the way those stiff-speaking British guards who never even chuckle, the way they kind of hand on the baton to the next group of guards. Well, the same thing exists in Shemayim. We are taught at night the Mishmaros of the Malachim change over. Three Mishmaros, three groupings of Malachim who change guard at three points in the night. And the Gemara tells us there are actually indicators for us to know when the guards of Malachim and Shemayim are changing. The Gemara says, at the first, at the time of the first Mishmar, the first guard of angels, Hamar Noah, the donkeys are braying. So in the beginning of the night, you hear donkeys braying, you know the first Mishmar of Malachim is well assembled. Then it says the second Mishmar of the night, the middle of the night, Chatzos Halayla, midnight. At that point, Klovim Tzalakim, the dogs are barking. And that's, of course, relevant to our search. Second Mishmar, the midnight Mishmar, the dogs bark. And then it says the third Mishmar of the night, you know what happens then? T 
Tinok Yonek Mishteimo. The nursling stirs and wants to nurse from his mother. Certainly relate, I certainly relate to this with a young child, young baby in the home, who does not completely sleep through the night. Various feedings are necessary through the night, and certainly as morning draws closer, he gets up, he needs to nurse, needs his mother. So when that happens, you know it's the third Mishmar, the third Guard of Angels, and the Gemara mentions a second indicator of that third Mishmar, and that is Isha Misapara Sambalo. A woman speaks with her husband, the couple is getting up, and as he gets up, brushes his teeth, shaves, get himself together, and she gets up, gets herself together, they're conversing, they're talking about the day ahead of them. Well, when that's going on, you know it's the third, it's the third Mishmar, it's the end of the night. Now, so here we have three creatures. The donkey, the dog, and the family. That sounds like a Jewish joke. You have a rabbi, a priest, and a bartender. But no, it's the donkey, the dog, and the family, right? And they're going to represent something in terms of the nocturnal heavenly protocols of these three mishmars. Now, before we get to understanding what each of these three represent, we need to know more about the mishmaros of the malachim. What this chain, three chain, three guards and three changes of the guards in heaven represents, and the Gemara tells us clearly what it represents. The Gemara tells us, "Valkol mishmaru mishmar kairi." At the time that each of these guards of Malachim take stage, so to speak, Hashem roars like a lion in divine, vociferous, divine discomfort. He roars like a lion. Mourning what? Mourning the Chorban Beis HaMikdash. As the Gemara says, the Omer, he says in this roar, as each Mishmar of Malachim takes its place, Oiloi Labanim, woe to my children, Shabbat and Hoseim, due to their sins. Hechrafti Asbeisi, I destroyed my home. Vesirafti Asheichali, I burnt my hecho, my temple, the Higlisan Levenu Masaolam and an Adzaldom amongst the nation. Hashem's mournfully roars in vociferous protest over the state of the Gulls, the state of the Chorba. Now, why is Hashem mourning the Chorba at each of these three times at the night when the guards of Malachim change? So the clue to understand why can be teased out from that same Gemara. Because listen to the Pasuk the Gemara cites as the source for Hashem roaring, mourning at the time, at these times. The Gemara cites a Pasuk in Yermia Parachafei. Hashem mimarom yishag umimaon kadshal yitain kolo. Hashem wails from his holy abode, what's called meon kadshal, that chamber in heaven that's called the, the Ma'on, the divine abode. Shoei Gishag, he roars al-Navehu on his house, on his home, which was lost. With your sensitive ear, hear the juxtaposition in this Pasuk. He is mourning in his Ma'on. He is mourning in his heavenly abode. The loss of Navehu, the loss of his earthly home. That I would put together the pieces from this perspective as follows. As the Mishmaros of Malachim assemble guarding the Ma'on, guarding the heavenly palace, and it seems like all is at peace. 
not only in Windsor Palace or Buckingham Palace, but all is at peace in the Heavenly Palace. Hashem says, I am not satisfied with this ma'on, with this palace in heaven, with its entourage and all of its pomp and glory. There's another home I want. I want my home on earth. I want to be with my people, as the Medrash tells elsewhere. Hashem desires to live with us. He desires intimacy with us, living at home with the Jewish people here on earth. He's not satisfied with his ma'on, with his heavenly abode, glorious as it might be with his mishmaras of malachim. He says, I'm not satisfied with this ma'on and its mishmaras of malachim. You know what this is akin to? You have a beautiful castle, a palatial home for the king, but the king lives all alone there. He's lonely. He wants to be with his beloved. Hashem doesn't want to be an altar abacher, a bachelor living in his private apartment. Glorious as that personal apartment, palatial as that personal apartment, serenaded as he is in that personal apartment by his Mishmaris of Malachim. He wants to be with us here on earth, and that's why as the Mishmaris assemble in heaven, around his Ma'on, he is mourning. Good. But what does this have to do with our threesome, not the rabbi, the priest, the bartender, but the donkey, the dog, and the nursling with its mother, the woman with her husband, where does that come into the picture? What is the significance of those symbolisms? So I want to suggest as follows. It's the nighttime. The nocturnal darkness, we know, represents the Gullus. As Rashi tells us in Parshas Lach Lecha, regarding the Brisbane Absarim, when Avram becomes frightened by the pitch black, Avram fears the pitch black. What does that represent? Says Rashi. Tsaras Hagos, the pain of the exile, the pain of his people collectively, and the individual victim, the individual Jewish suffering. That is what Avram foresees in Brisbane, I'm sorry, in the nocturnal shadow which so haunts him. So the nighttime represents the Gaulus, the Horba. But at the end of night, as nocturnal darkness begins to shift to dawn, the hope of Gaula begins to loom. So that is why the end of the night is actually a time of hope. At the time of the final Mishmar of the night, there's a different spirit. And that is represented by the simonim, by the indicators the Gemara mentions at the end of the night, the nursling is stirred to suckle from his mother. What does that represent? Well, in the mournful imagery of Megillah Secha, we know the Jewish people are depicted as the child of Tzion, the child of Yerushalayim. She is mavli baneha. She is without her children. She is bereft of her children. She will only find solace at the time of the Geula, as depicted in the Shavah Brachas, 
sos tasis v'sagel ha'akara b'kibot b'na b'tochol ha'semcha. So at the end of the night, on this nocturnal morning, as it shifts to dawn and hope, the hope of Geula, this is represented by the nursling, stirred now to, to suckle from his mother. He was separated from her. Perhaps he had separation anxiety. Think about the baby who has trouble sleeping at night in his crib and has to learn to be all by himself and mature with that, but experience the discomfort. When he's reunited with his mother, suckling with his mother, at the time of morning dawn. That is a very moving, hopeful imagery. Nursling is with mother again upon the light of dawn. And that represents the Jewish people returning to Zion, returning to their motherlands and their mother. And likewise in the second imagery of the Gemara regarding the third Mishmar, the third guard at the time of dawn. Ishem is a parasambayla, husband and wife talk again. Well, the spousal imagery, the marital imagery of husband and wife dialoguing with each other, this is always associated with Geula. Hashem, the husband of the Jewish people, lost contact with her at the time of the exile. As Megillah Seicha mourns, Haisa Kalmana, Tzion and the Jewish people as a whole feel like a widow. Hashem has seemingly left her. But at the time of Geula, the loving mates will be back again, Hashem and the Jewish people. And that is represented by the morning dawn when we are told, Isha Mesaparis and Bailo, husband and wife are speaking again. Even if at night each one was immersed in their own dreams, their own nocturnal dreams, their own world, well, they reconnect upon the morning light. Hashem and the Jewish people will come together at the end of their sleepy exile. That is the power of the imagery of the third Mishmar of the night. But how about the first two Mishmaros of the night? When Hashem is mourning the Chorban, we studied. At the time of the first guard, the donkey brays. What does that donkey represent? And then at the time of the second Mishmar, Klavim Tzalakim, the dog barks. What does the dog represent? And that is, of course, our true focus tonight. We wanted to decipher the deeper meaning of the dog with, that, with Pesach in our rear view mirror. So I would posit, in the context of this Gemara, in the context of Gullus, this Tucson, first the donkey and then the dog, will represent the two Gullison, the two destructions of the Beis HaMikdash. First the Chorban Bayis Rishon, and then the Chorban Bayis Sheni. The Chorban Bayis Rishon, the destruction of the first temple, is represented by a, do- by a donkey. Why a donkey? A donkey throughout Chazal, throughout rabbinic literature, represents immorality, debasement of the human being. Don- the donkey is considered by the Tanakh to be a rather unintelligent creature, a beast of burden. By the way, this creeps up in Yiddish lingo as well. Achamar is a very derogatory term. And I have to say, when I've heard Alta Yidin call each other Achamar, there's something to the way they call each other Achamar. Well, this is drawn directly from Chazal. And Chazal say that in particular, the donkey represents promiscuity. Where there's no concept of love for another, it's just, it's, a fleshy sort of thing, as the Pusuk says, Bisar Chamorim Bisram. 
The Pusik depicts those who are engaged in such things as fleshy like the donkey. So that was the story of the first Gaulus. Because we know that the first Gaulus was due to immoral sins. The breakdown of basic, basic humanity of the Jewish people. They committed the three cardinal sins at the time of the destruction of the Bayes Rishon. Avodah Zarah, there's murder, there's promiscuity. And this issue, linking the first Gaulus to immorality, to donkey-like behavior, continues all the way to the end of the exile, the first exile, the Babylonian exile. Because Ezra and Nehemiah cope with the issue of the Nashim Nachrios, the foreign girls which the Jewish people fell prey to. They kind of turned their back on Jewish girls and they had this issue with non-Jewish girls. This was an issue at the time of the first Gaulus, which I am correlating to this first vision of the night, this first vision of Gaulus the donkey. Then the second depiction of Gaulus, i.e. the second Gaulus, is akin to the dog. Why the dog? And as I promised tonight, first we will study some of, some of the unsavory symbolisms of the dog, but then we will discover the redemptive quality of the dog. Well, the dog is generally associated with the media of chutzpah, brazenness. Dogs are considered audacious creatures by Chazal. Kalbin de Chatzifin, the chutzpah dick dog. As the Zohar says, Kalbin Omrim have have. The dog says, Give me, give me. The dog insists, Give me, give me, give me. In fact, it's interesting. If you ask an American kid, what is a, what is a dog saying? What's the doggy saying? They'll say, Woof, woof, or bow, wow. In early Ivrit, however, in the Haveri books and so on, what did they teach the Israeli children that the dog barks? Not woof woof or woof woof. Have, have. Give me, give me. Isn't that amazing? That the language of Ivrit spoken by even secular Israelis is laced with rabbinic imagery. Hearing in the barking of the dog, not a simply woof woof, but a whole rabbinic perspective. The dog, woof woof, the dog is saying, give me, give me, with chutzpah. The dog's meat is chutzpah. And this directly correlates to the second gullus, the gullus which we are still in, because we know the Gemara tells us that the second gullus to the very end is a period of chutzpah, to the extent that we are told at the end of the second gullus, pnei adar kipnei the face of the generation will be like a dog, zekenim yamdu lefnei na'arim, the old will get up in front of the young, the old will feel they need to conform to the young, to the cool, the beautiful. That's the brazenness of the end of the second exile, which the sages see as dog-esque. And I would suggest that even the original destruction of the Bayashani, which we, we, which we are told is due to sinaschinam, baseless hatred, there's a chutzpah element to that. There's me and you. There is the type of infighting which occurred at the time of the second temple, the sectarian nature of the Jewish people, everything you read about in the New Testament, that there are Pharisees and there are Essenes and the like, everything that still exists. I have my hachshur, you have your hachshur, I eat at your house, you eat at my house. 
that sort of sinas chinam, historically, is very chutzpah-related. Me and my ego, chas v'shalom, and you, that is the bayashemi, and why that chorban is depicted not as the hamar, not like the donkey, not in morality, but rather chutzpah. And that is why when Hashem mourns the first two guards of the night, it is depicted, Chorban Bayis is depicted as both a donkey, Chorban Bayis Rishon, and a dog, Chorban Bayis Sheni. This was always how I understood the Gemara. And from that perspective, I had very negative associations with the dog. But this year, I had a very humbling realization. I find it so humbling whenever I restudy the same text with a new commentary and a new perspective, and I see they turn it all on its head. I was studying with a student of mine the Kabbalistic writings of Reptsadak Hakoe Mi Lublin, the great Polish mystic. And he says the dog barking at night is not negative, but positive. Says Reptsadak, the morning of the Chorban is depicted as the dog barking to teach the Jewish people you need to pray like the dog barks. Davin well. That dog knows how to speak his mind all right. He's barking. You need to pray for Geula, for personal redemption, national redemption, the way the dog barks. And when I read that commentary of Rebetzadak, I thought, wow, there's a positive association to a dog. Where does he get that from? He is seeing the dog as a symbol, as an icon of tefillah? I mean, when I think of tefillah and a shul, and then I think of the dog, I mean, I would never draw such associations. Who would think of bringing a dog into shul? You know, Rav Moshe has a famous tshuva where he allows a blind individual to bring a, a CNI dog into shul. And Rav Moshe was accosted for this. Who could think about bringing a dog to show? There seems to be this complex many Jews have about a dog for some reason. Well, Rav Tzadik is saying that the dog is an icon of tefillah, the way the dog barks. Where does that come from? But then it hit me. The meat of the dog, which we studied as chutzpah, is brazenness. That is how you need to pray. You need to pray for the Geula from a place of chutzpah. You know why? When we are in the abyss, when we are in a deep, dark place, to stand up and say, Hashem, I want better. I do not accept morosis, lowliness. There's a chutzpah in that perspective. It's easy to fall prey to Yish, give up hope. It is the way it is. I'm not going to aspire for better. I'm not going to pray for better. But if you're gutsy and even brazen, you say, I do aspire for better. And I do pray for better, even if the gullus has been so long, even if my personal suffering has been so long. And that is why Rabbi is saying, when you daven for personal redemption or national redemption, daven like the dog barks. Rabbi is very much aware of the chutzpah association of the dog. That is exactly what he means. Chutzpah has its place too. You need to pray for personal redemption and national redemption like the dog. Don't let up. I am not letting go. I am not accepting victim status. I am brazen. This is what I call 
the audacity to yearn, the audacity to hope for better, to hope for Gaula. It is audacious to say, I insist on better. I will demand better from Hashem and I will pursue and better in my life. That is a chutzpah, that is a holy chutzpah. And that is something we are supposed to learn from the dog, praying for the guru. And now, with this redemptive quality to the dog, we can go back to the original Pesach imagery, which we hoped would provide for us a final parting thought about redemption as we move on from Pesach. Lo yachratz kelev l'shono, even the dog didn't bark. And you remember I wanted to find what is the symbolism of the dog. Well, the Jewish people we know were redeemed when they did what? When did the pendulum shift of redemption happen in Egypt? What happened? The Chumash tells us quite clearly it was when they cried. Vayezaku b'nei Yisrael. When they finally reacted and even yelled, yelled from pain. When they no longer were complacent in their victimhood or they no longer gave up hope. That is when they were redeemed. Well, I'm going to suggest, based on this Reb Tzadok, if a Jewish prayer, a Jewish crying for Geula is akin to a dog barking. Then how powerful a symbolism. The dog stops barking only at the time of Geula when they are redeemed. There is a contrasting imagery intended here. The dog will only stop barking the night of redemption because you Jewish people, then and only then, no longer need to bark like your canine icon of prayer, the dog. Previously, up until the time of Geula, you need to bark like the dog. Because that is how a Jew prays for Geula, according to Rabbi teaching as we developed it. That is what I thought. That I thought the, do- the dog not barking the night of redemption, in contrast to all the previous nights, is supposed to tell us, only let up from this holy chutzpah, only let up from the insistence on better when you achieve better. Up until that point, display the audacity to hope. That was my suggestion. But I wanted to find some sort of buttressing clue or proof to back this up. That that is, in fact, what the dog not barking at the time of Makas Bechoros for the Jews is re- representative of. I wanted to find some sort of connect the dots. To take all the imagery of that Gemara we studied before about the dogs at the midnight, the middle of the night who inspire us to mourn, to pray for Geula, connecting them to the Seder night imagery of the dog not barking. And then it hit me. Very simple realization. 
What a coincidence, in quotes. We studied in the Gemara earlier that the dog who inspires us to pray is barking when? Midnight. What a coincidence that the night of the Seder is particularly at the midnight that the dogs stop barking. The very time that we are told the dogs are generally barking at night. And we are supposed to take heed and turn and cry for Geula ourselves, Tikkun Chatzos. It's at that very time period where the night of the Seder, when they were finally redeemed, the dogs stopped barking because it was midnight when the plague of the firstborn hit the Egypt, struck the Egyptians and in turn the Jews were freed. That here we have two unmistakably inverse pictures. We're taught in the Gemara that the time of the Gullus, at the time of the Gullus, at midnight the dog barks and in turn the Jews pray. Here we have at the time of Geulah, it is specifically at midnight that the dog didn't bark. The inverse imagery is unmistakable. Midnight and midnight. And at this point, I became convinced. This is the deeper message of the dog not barking at midnight. In contrast to every other midnight, when the dog barks and the Gemara says, we Jews are supposed to pray for Gullus. So long as you are in the Gullus, hearken to the canine bark at midnight. And be audacious yourself. Pray for better. It is only at the time of Geula. When the clock strikes noon, midnight, you don't need a bark anymore. Your dream has been achieved. One final reference. In case we are skeptical, somewhat skeptical about the positive imagery to the dog, the way we turn this all on its head in our study of the Gemara we began with. I found another text which almost explicitly tells us that the barking versus the change of demeanor of the dog correlates to Gullus and Geula. Listen to this, and this will hopefully bring our whole study full circle. Fascinating Gemara and Babakama, which is talking about the sixth sense the animals have. The Gemara believes that animals perceive things which at times people don't. And in particular, the Gemara says dogs see things that people don't in the angelic metaphysical sense. And it tells us, Klovim Bochem, when the dogs are barking uncontrollably, they're not just barking, they're belting. Malachamavas be'ir, the angel of death is present, and somehow the dogs, the dog's soul, whatever that means, notices that. However, Klovim Mesachakim, when the dogs are frolicking and not their normal bouncing around rolling around, when they are frolicking in an unusual, uncharacteristic way, Elio Hanavi here. They sense the presence of Elio Hanavi, the messenger of Geula. Here we have an explicit text in the Gemara which is envisioning the dog's demeanor, barking or the, dog, the canine pleasure 
in terms of Galas and Gula. So now I have no doubt that we have a larger picture of Chazal's perspective of rabbinic imagery. The barking of the dog is Galas-esque. Not simply in terms of the dog's sixth sense, but in terms of what it's supposed to inspire in us as we study from Tzadok. When Malach HaMavas is beer, when danger is lurking, when a person is not in a place where they want to be, when, when you're in the abyss, bark like a dog, meaning be brazen. Exhibit that audacity to hope. In due time, you will frolic. You will celebrate like the dog who ceases to bark, who laughs when a Leo Hanavi's be here. When you find your personal redemption in life, your personal Leo Hanavi, then you will be misachic like the dog. How powerful to trace from all of these texts a cohesive perspective and one which folds so nicely in to the Pesach imagery, only the night of the Seder the dogs don't bark, during the Gullus the dog barks and in turn we have a responsibility to pray and to yearn. And I'm hoping the group finds this takeaway idea, powerful as I am finding it powerful. This week, as I've put away my dishes and attempted to catch up on the work log after Pesach and transition and moving forward, hopefully spiritually as well, taking something with Pesach with me. I'm reluctant to move on, but I must do so. So I need to take some of that inspiration for redemption, for aspiring to better with me and integrated in my daily life. This message, the audacity to hope, the chutzpah learned from the dog when you are facing gullus, is relevant to everyone. Because everyone is in a gullus of sorts. Everyone is in a condition where they don't want to be. Whether it's on a level of mitos, Am I the person I want to be? Am I the person I want to be in a level of mitos? Do I have the calm demeanor, the equanimity I want? Do I have the self-confidence I want? Or am I Khalila struggling with inferiority complex? Whether it's relational issues, am I behaving towards my closest ones, to those I love, or things as I want them to be relationally? Whether religiously, is my davening the way I want it to be? Is my learning the way I want it to be? Is my Shemir Smitzis the way I want it to be? As we take the story of Gullus Ga'ula at all of old and we apply it to our daily life in terms of finding personal redemption, I am inspired by this message, the audacity to hope. Do not accept. It just has to be that way. Do not impose glass ceilings on your personal development, your religious development, your relational development. Just as the dog doesn't seem to give up, it barks. The audacity to hope. May we all reap the rewards of this audacity to hope, of this aspiration to make things better, to daven and to behave in that upward swing of ge'ula, and thus we will take 
some of that message of redemption of Pesach with us. Thank you very much. Any questions?